0: So there's none like you, O oh God, none in all of the world. It's amazing that when you follow scripture, book by book, verse by verse, how the Lord works out exactly what the agenda is going to be. That he knew at the beginning of the year when we started in Acts that we would be at this time where We would need to hear from God when it comes to understanding how to trust God through a crisis. So I ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, to chapter 27, and through two verses, 1 through 26. That's the book of Acts, chapter 27. Verses 1 through 26. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, My God is awesome. awesome. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the course of Asia, we put up to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus and Macedonian from Thessalonica. Then the next day he put in at Sidon, And Judas, or rather Julius, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed to the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea to the coast of Cilicia, and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. The centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed down for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Knidos. And the wind, rather as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off. Simone, uh, Simone. coasting along with all difficulty, we came to the place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of La Sia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the satyrian paid no attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow They could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed alone to Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind came, called the northeaster, and struck down the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it. And we were driven alone. Running under the lee of a small island called Clauda, We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After horsing it up. They used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground. On Sirtas, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven alone. Since we were violently tossed, a storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid on us, all hope was of our being saved was at last abandoned since they had been without food for a long time Paul stood up and said to them men you should have listened to me and have not sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you but only of the ship For this very night stood, there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing and the true believing of his word. You may be seated. Beloved, there are some great lessons that we can learn from the trial and tribulations of this particular voyage. In our text today, we find really two sets of ideas which should always give God to our lives. Number one, there is faith and unbelief. Secondly, there is obedience and disobedience. We must always remember that disobedience is the root of unbelief. Unbelief is the mother of further disobedience. Our faith is voluntary, is our voluntary submission within our own hearts to trust the power of Jesus Christ in all things. If our faith is not exercised, then the true cause of this lies deeper than our intellectual understanding. It lies really with our own uh, moral aversion and the belief of our human will over our belief in God. It's the pride of our independence, which is always screaming out to us. Who is really Lord over us? And why should we depend on Jesus Christ? But with faith... Obedience and submission, we find that faith breeds obedience, but unbelief leads to higher rebellion. When this happens, the more a person trusts, the more a person can trust in Christ. The more a person is disobedient, the less a person trusts in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we just sung that you are an awesome God. You have given us. You're the author of our salvation. By Your stripes we are healed. Let us recognize this morning that we need to trust You more than ever. That we need to believe that You know the end from the beginning. That nothing has caught in you, nothing has caught You off guard. That You hold You hold all of our futures in Your hands. And because of that, You're a sovereign God in which we can have faith in. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you're in the middle of Morris Lake. And you're in two rowboats. You're standing with one foot in each boat. One boat is filled with holes and is sinking fast. And it's obvious if you don't do something, in a few moments you're going to be in the lake. The other boat has no holes in it, and it represents Christ. The boat that is filled with holes represents our lives that are always leaking with sin. It should be obvious that you cannot continue to keep one foot in each boat. Because if you do, you're going to end up in the lake. So you got to remove that foot from the boat that is marked the sins of ourselves and place both feet firmly in the boat that is marked Christ, our Savior. You know, there are Christian markers when it comes to our behavior and Christian characteristics when it comes to living on the lakes of our lives. And they are godly counsel and godly conformity, and godly courage. All of those show our true faith in Christ Jesus. Our godly adherence can be seen in the first psalm. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Why, you ask? He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, That the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, this first psalm is incredibly pregnant with possibilities and filled with hope. It's really the gateway to the whole book of Psalms. It stresses to us that those who worship God, those who genuinely trust God, those who embrace his counsel, so those who are willing to follow his law and surrender, those who are willing to live by his covenant instruction, happy are they in their life because they do not reject his authority. They do not reject his counsel. And God repays them by showering his favor upon them when we look deeply we see that it speaks to the people that were within israel who refused to live by the covenant a godly person wants to live by the orientation of his father he doesn't want to increase to the level of those who are wicked sinners those who are scoffers and because Those who are righteous delight in the Lord. They are what? Blessed. There's no reason that they should ever think that such blessings come because they deserve it. It comes through God's incredible faithfulness and grace. All that we can do in return is to show our love, our obedience unto God by meditating actively actively pondering on his word even muttering to ourselves in the pursuit of godly insight and then we see something here that's really interesting in verses three and four the psalmist gives us two similes and it describes what an agrarian culture would have understood back in palestine a simile is just a figure of speech that takes two unlike things and compares them like she is like a rose look what it says here the first image is that of a tree in a dry climate which nevertheless even though it's in a dry climate thrives because of the constant supply of living water the tree bears fruit not for itself but it bears fruit for what for others Thus, when the faithful prosper, it is not for ourselves, but that prospering is for the whole body. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 and 8, He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. But its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. Nowhere in the Bible does it say there won't be drought. There won't even be famine. But he says that you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and shall not be moved. Then as we look at four here, it says it speaks of this difference between the wicked chaff. When he talks about chaff here, it refers to the husk. And the straw that is removed when you put wheat on the threshing floor and you throw it up in the air. The chaff will blow off, but the edible kernels will fall down on the floor. So he says that the wind drives away the chaff. Those who reject God's counsel and covenant are like chaff. They bring no benefit to anyone. And then as it ends up here. The psalmist in verses 5 and 6, he does another contrast. He's told you that these two trees represent two different lives. Now he's going to show you what the outcomes are. And he tells us that, therefore, in this song, it tells us that those who are not wicked in life will not see a final judgment. That those who are obedient enter into the congregation of what? The righteous, while excluding others. Ecclesiastics 12 and 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We can, hide th- we can hide things from each other, but we can hide nothing from God. We can hide our unfaithfulness from one another, but we cannot hide our unfaithfulness from God, and then six really sums it up with this phrase: "For the Lord, what knows? The Lord knows about the wicked, and He knows their deep, deepest secrets. And He also knows those who are righteous and faithful." Psalm ninety-eight, eight through eleven. Understand, O dullers of people, fools when will you be wise he has planted the ear does not hear he who has formed the eye does he not see he who disciplines the nations does he not rebuke he who teaches man knowledge the lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath since here god we see god speaking about the righteousness it is better for us to recognize that when he knows us he knows us with affection he knows us because he has approved and given us our righteousness amos 3 2 through 3 you only have i known of all the families of the earth therefore i will punish you for all your iniquities they will perish that is in in destruction do two walk together unless they have met to agree god knows that those of us to more to most is given a much is given much is required he knows our hearts whether or not we belong to him when we are not uh compassionate concerned and righteous and holy as we should be then we are rebuked from that this morning we have one of the most fascinating scenes in all of the new testament concerning an ancient shipwreck and at the same time i think is also a great picture of a believer's trust And faith in God and His great care. It challenges us to believe God through the trials of life, even the most terrifying trials. We see here in verses one through three, Paul begins his journey, and it will be his last journey. He will never return again to Palestine or to his people as far as Acts is concerned. This book is about to be the closing chapter on his life. We'll see later on, and he tells us himself that his life is being poured out like a drink offering before the Lord. But as he begins in this particular text, we see four things that I find are so interesting. Number one, when Paul is on this ship that's taking them to Italy, he finds a friend. And a centurion named Julius Now we remember Julius From Acts 23:23. Look what it says Then he called two of the centurions Remember a centurion would be A captain of over A uh, hundred soldiers Then he called Two of the centurions and said Get ready two hundred soldiers With seventy horsemen and two hundred Spearmen and go as far As Caesarea at the Third hour of the night First, I think we have to recognize that these prisoners were being shipped to Rome and what that really meant. Some of them were just like Paul. They had appealed to see Caesar, and that's why they were on this ship going to Rome. The majority of them were condemned as criminals, and they were going to be able to be in uh, as gladiators or really to be combatants and gladiator shows and be fed to the lions for the entertainment of the day and it's a great paradox here because you see how roman society on one end was so sensitive in their judgment or in their justice that if you're a roman citizen you were granted a last appeal beyond whatever any other court had said if you could appeal before caesar But also at the same time, it showed the sovereignty of their justice because they took the condemned prisoners and made them fight for their lives before lions. You know, persecution and abuse will always follow the lives of those who truly trust in Christ. Philippians 1, 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then we see when they come to this first ship at the port of Troas, and it's a ship with Asian cargo on it. And it's a ship that is a cargo ship, but it's really not large enough. But he can't find a ship that has a direct route going to Italy. So they get aboard this ship. And the ship, because of the weather, is going to hug along the coastlines, stopping at every port, unloading and loading cargo. And again, it's temporary transportation because Julius is still trying to find a larger ship that's heading directly to Rome. Then we see the introduction of two of Paul's closest friends from the past. You have Luke and Aristarchus, And now they're back with Paul here. Uh, Paul was arrested before when Luke uh, went away or stayed really in Jerusalem in Acts 21. 18 and now he reappears. We recognize it because he acknowledges himself here, but not only that, but now he uses we in the narration. And then we have Aristarchus from Thessalonica, who's been with Paul, who's brought relief offerings to him to the Jerusalem church, who was seized by an angry mob back in Acts 1929, and it says So that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. And there's yet another development here. As we see this respectful friendship flourish between Paul and Julius. Julius, in verses 3-8, says this. Julius sent Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for him. So he takes off his shackles. He's on the ship. He gives him free reign to go back and forth with his friends. He could be entertained and enjoy his friends. He can enjoy their hospitality and his friends as we've talked about before. When you were a Roman prisoner, your friends had to bring in things that you needed. They could also give him medical attention if that's what he needed. So Paul was blessed again to have these two by him side and to recognize but everything here i want you to see was predicated on greed these cargo ships would take on passengers only because they didn't have a full ship of cargo these cargo ships as we will recognize later recognized that they were sailing in dangerous waters and there was a greater payoff if they were able to make it through Rome would always pay them more and also pay for the damages that happened to their ships. There's a Russian novelist, Leo Tolstoy, and he wrote a story about this farmer. He's a peasant farmer who was not satisfied with how much land he already owned. He was a greedy farmer and he wanted more of everything. So one day he received a notice that for 1,000 rubles, he could buy all the land he could walk around in a day now it was one catch the only catch he had to be back at his starting point by sundown so he got up early the next morning he started out walking at a really rapid pace and by midday he was incredibly tired, but his greed just kept on building him up, giving him more courage, and he covered more and more ground well into the afternoon, and then he realized that his greed had taken him farther away from his starting point, so he turned around and quickly increased his pace, and he got there right before sundown, right before it lowered into the sky. So he began to run because he could see the finish line. And then he dropped dead of a heart attack. Gasping for breath, his heart pounding, he called on every bit of strength left in his body. But soon the sun disappeared and so did he. He collapsed blood screaming from his mouth. Afterwards, his servants dug his grave. And the grave was not much larger than six feet long by three feet wide. So the title of the novelist's story was, How Much Land Does a Man Really Need? That's the power of greed. When we look at verses 4 through 12, we see that we are to trust God through his godly counsel and never yield to greedy compromise this is a difficult season in this ancient time for selling it happened every year when you got to the late fall right before the winter months right around november through february these were dangerous times look what it says in verse four putting out to sea from there we sailed under the lee of cyprus because the winds were against us Pastor, what does it mean that the winds were against us? It means that the winds were strong and they were forceful and that north-west uh, headwind gave them such a challenge. They could not sail into the wind. They could not go a straight course across an open sea. So they had to sail near the coast. So they instead of sailing north to Cyprus, they had to go south under the cover and the protection of the islands and the mainland of Asia to shield them from the force of the gale winds. They needed shelter because they wanted to protect their valuable cargo. Don't get it twisted here. Their valuable cargo was not the prisoners, but it was the wheat they were taking to Rome. And as they continued to sail down to Pamphylia and meet and really get to the port of Myra and Lisha. We see here in verse 6 it says, Then the Centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they took everything off of one ship that belonged to them, plus the prisoners, put it on this larger ship that was a grain ship coming from Alexandria would been in Egypt. And now they sailed, Seven says, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty to Connitas. As the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete. The ship plowed alone. It's only 130 miles to Myra, but the winds were so strong, we kept backing them up. So they go under the lee of Crete. What is the Lee of Crete? The Lee of Crete would have been the south side of Cyprus. It would have been somewhere, would have been really where there would have been shelter from the winds so that they wouldn't be forced further off course. And then verses 89 says, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia, since much time has passed. And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them. When he speaks of this fast being over, he's talking about the Day of Atonement. What was the Day of Atonement? It was that great Jewish festival that was celebrated the first part of October. We see it lifted up in Leviticus 16.29. And it shall be a statue, or rather be a statue for you, Forever that in the seventh month and the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and do no work. Neither the native or the stranger who sojourns with you. Now the day of atonement is known as what? Yom Kippur. And this, this atonement ritual started with Abram and subsequently later on with the high priest of Israel, coming into the holy of holies this day is marked on the calendar to underscore the fact that god told moses to warn abram that he that abram or aaron could not come into the most holy place whenever he felt like it he can only come on a special day once a year lest he would die so they didn't take this ceremony lightly Aaron would bathe, put on his special garments. He would sacrifice a bull. He would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would bring in two goats. One would be sacrificed for the uncleanness and the rebellion of the people and their sins. And then the other goat was called the scapegoat, which he would take the sins of the people and place on the head of the goat. And then the goat would be sent outside of the camp so that it would carry away the people's sins so they will be forgiven for another year isn't it wonderful that christ did his one for all sacrifice that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god because see the scapegoat always found its way back to camp but jesus christ is the great high priest that takes away the sins of the world that his sacrifice was all sufficient and now he sits down at the right hand of god the father and no other sacrifice is needed the sufficiency of christ the completeness of christ allow him to be the propitiation for our sins and that the wrath of god will never come upon us But I want you to look at this clear godly counsel, this clear warning that comes in verse 10, that they ignored. This is Paul speaking. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. They're in fair havens here. They're in a safe harbor and Paul is saying, we need to stay here. We need to spend the winter here. Because if we continue on this journey, there's going to be much injury. There's going to be much loss, not only of the cargo on the ship, but also our lives. When he says, I perceive, then where did this knowledge come from? This knowledge comes from his close communion with God. This knowledge comes from his experience at being at sea before. This knowledge comes from the fact that this brother has been shipwrecked three times. You remember 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 through 28? Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day. I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger of rivers, danger of robbers, dangers of my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those other things, there was a daily pressure of me and my anxiety for the churches. He said, You need really, you need to listen to me. But look what happens in four, or rather 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Why is that, Pastor? Because the centurion recognized that the pilot and the owner were worldly-minded. It was the greed of the ship. The Roman government would pay more for goods and services received through a hostile sailing season. They will repair any ship's vessel that sustained any damage. And because of that greed, they were willing to take the chance to continue to sail to Italy. And also, La Silla, where they were here in the port, didn't have enough conveniences. And really, that's a really nice word for saying it didn't have enough vice for the soldiers to entertain them for the rest of the winter. They need, you know, they, they're pulling into the port of Terre Haute. They needed to pull into Indianapolis. You know, they needed more vice. And then there was a legitimate concern that if wheat gets wet, then it will swell. And they were concerned about, hey, if we stay here, we'll lose the whole Cargo. Because if it gets, we're not going to be able to cover it up enough of it to make sure it doesn't get wet. But people, you know, people then are just like people are now. We often risk our lives, even our souls, because of mere pleasures. Look at what Luke 12, 15, 21 says. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness." For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, "So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God the pilot and the owner of this ship, they weren't rich toward God, but they were laying up treasures for themselves. They turned down a godly counsel to remain there so that they could be saved, and they did not trust Jesus. What keeps a person from trusting Jesus? Because they've been successful, they've had great accomplishments, and Because they have done what they consider so much in their own lives that they don't need him? Is it independence that they don't want to ask for anyone's help? Is it pride they don't want to ever admit that they have sinned and they need a savior? Is it unbelief that they don't believe that Jesus has died for them? Is it the blessing of wealth because all of their physical needs are met? So they become incredibly content. Charles Spurgeon once said, you will find a person's true theology summed up in two sentences. Salvation is all of the grace of God. Damnation is all of the will of man. Trusting God demands that we have courage And never yield to deceptive calmness. This whole picture that we see from 13 to 26. Is because of deceptive calmness. It really comes into focus in 13. Look at verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently. Supposing that they had obtained their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore so what is deceptive calmness it is the overconfidence that we often have in ourselves because of our own wisdom jeremiah 6 13 through 19 says for from the least to the greatest of them everyone is greedy for unjust gain and from prophet to priest everyone deals falsely they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We are ashamed when they commit abomination. No, they are not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they will be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I said, a watchman over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hero nations and know O congregation, What will happen to them? Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon these people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. Where does true wisdom and true knowledge come from? 2 Chronicles 1.10 gives us a great example in what Solomon says. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? Regardless of what level we are in society or in our political nation, we all have to trust and take the advice of a holy God. No one is wise enough to govern God's world by themselves. The pilot and the owner of the ship bought into this calmness. They thought, surely we can make it to Phoenix. It's only 60 miles. By the time we get to Phoenix, it'll be fine. But that gentle wind fooled them because the course changed. We see in verses 14 and 15, but soon a tempestuous, a tempunctuous wind came upon them called the Northeaster, struck down the ship and caught it. Now, I love boating, but I have a motorized boat, so it's a little different than sailing when you're really depending upon the winds, where the winds can drive you all over the ocean or the lake. The same thing happens sometimes in a motorized boat when you're trying uh, to dock it because A boat doesn't have brakes. So as you come in to dock it, you have to turn down the throttle, almost turn the engine off that you can float in and then guide yourself to the dock and then throw it in the reverse to get it to stop. And can you imagine this northeastern wind coming as a full gale wind against a non-motorized boat? It'll be like being in a typhoon. It engulfed them, it swallowed their power, it drove the ship into the sea, made it impossible for them to control it. So what does it say in the scripture? They just gave away. They gave way to it. They let the wind have its way. And it took them completely off course. Took them to a small island that wasn't far from the north coast of Africa. They kept struggling to gain control of the boat. They struggled to horse the lifeboats into the ship. They struggled to keep the boat afloat. They wrapped ropes and chains around the hull of the boat. They struggled to keep the boat from going into the quicksand. They struggled to lighten the load, so they started to jettison things off of the boat. And now, as they come to verse 20, they are faced with the facts of that their own efforts were futile to save them. Hopelessness and depression was totally upon them. Look what it says in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, so they've seen the rising of the sun and they've seen the setting of the stars. They've seen it over and over and over. And, so, and then it says, and so small tempests lay upon us so the, wa- the water has not calmed. All hope in our being saved was at last abandoned. They gave up. And when they gave up of all of their personal efforts, Then you see God's man, Paul, step forth in verses 27, 21 through 22. And look what he says to them. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up and said to them, Man, you should have listened to me and not have sailed to Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now he's taking them back to is a subtle way of saying, I told you so. But he's not that judgmental. He now adds some comfort. Yet now, I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, think how different this is from the last time he spoke to us in 10. He said, if you leave this place, there's going to be injury and lost to the ship, the cargo, and our lives. But now, he says, there has been loss, but take heart, there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. He is a man that's been through many trials and tribulations, through dangers seen and unseen, through disappointments, but he's always trusted God and heeded the warning of God. He proclaims to them that there will be no loss of life, but only the loss of a ship. Paul is telling us that when all else fails around us, you can still trust God. Paul is telling us that because he's on the ship, the ship's not going down and the bonus is God's going to save you too but really he's interested in me getting to wrong so that I might testify look at Acts 27, 23 through 26 for this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong, to whom I belong and whom I worship And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. You remember earlier in Acts, he had promised Paul when he just escaped death that don't worry about it. You need to leave this place because you need to go and testify before Rome about me. Behold, God has granted, it says, don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So God's going to show you his mighty works as he saves the one who now worship him, who now belongs to him, who now trusts in him. He believes he's going to be fully delivered. Paul is recognizing that God is saving these men physically and in that process so that their trust in God and placing their faith in Jesus Christ will save them spiritually. Who on this boat wouldn't have remembered being shipwrecked? Who on this boat wouldn't have remembered how a servant of God who was on the boat as a prisoner proclaimed that the same God that he worshiped, that he trusted, that he belonged to was gonna grant the fact that they were gonna be saved as well? When we think about it, what was going on in our lives when God saved us? Were we heading into the rocks? Were we about shipwrecked? Were we hopeless? Were we full of despair? Were we in need of a Savior in whom we could trust? Look at this last verse here. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Paul is assuring them without a doubt it's going to be exactly as God has told me, but this ship is going to run aground. You know, sometimes God must allow us to face the abyss that he might humble us to accept the light that comes from the only one that can deliver us from darkness. You know, there's a story about the Red Cross back in the Spanish-American War. Claire Barton was overseeing the work of the Red Cross, and a colonel came up to her, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, and he wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders. But she refused to sell him any. Roosevelt was perplexed and saddened. His men needed help. And he needed food and he had money to pay. And he was willing to pay out of his own funds. When he asked someone why Claire would not sell the supplies to him, they said, Colonel, don't offer her money. Just ask her. And he went back and he asked Claire Barton. And she gave him everything he needed and told him the provisions were not for sale, but for the asking. You know the gospel of jesus christ is a lot like that we cannot do anything of our own volition to make god accept us and the gift that of eternal life that he has for us through the gospel of jesus christ and through the death burial, and resurrection that jesus christ has already done for us is not for sale but it is for the asking that is a provision for every need that we could possibly have. It's that bomb in Gilead that can heal us in times of great sickness. It is the one, that refuge that we can hide behind when the storms of life come in. When life comes in like a flood, we are able to believe that we can hold up a standard. And that standard is Christ. The great price for our salvation has already been paid on Calvary, and all we need to do now is ask for it by faith, and it is freely given to us. Let us pray. Dear Father, we just love you and praise you. We thank you for all that you're doing in this minute and this hour. We trust you in all things, for you are a good God. You are a great God and greatly to be praised. We recognize that these are challenging times, but Lord, we know that we are overcomers because you are overcoming God. Your son told us that in this world we will have trials and tribulations, but then he told us to be of good cheer for he has overcome the world. So Lord, we believe in your sovereignty of your words, sovereignty of all of your actions. We believe that we can trust you in all things. It is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. You know, God is truly fit on that.